Two and a Half Admins, episode 118. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. We have to talk about Twitter, but I don't want to talk about the politics of it. I don't want to talk about the moderation issues, the the business side of things. I want to talk to you both about the infrastructure side of it. They have laid off, not, not they, he, Musk, has laid off a bunch of people, forced another bunch of people to quit effectively with ultimatums. That we could talk about for hours, but we're not going to. What we're going to talk about is the consequences of that. Now, there have been a lot of people saying that you can't just fire your entire SRE team and expect it not to fall over. So the question is, do you think that Twitter is going to fall over? If so, when and how? And, you know, what do we think from an infrastructure point of view? It's going to be, it already is degrading. It's going to continue to degrade. You're going to see more issues like um, one of the things I've been seeing lately is uh, like you see a quote tweet. And when you quote tweet somebody, of course, it renders the original tweet inside that box. And I've been seeing a lot of quote tweets where the original renders there inside the quote tweet. But if you click the actual original tweet, it says tweet not available when you get there. And what you're seeing is most likely the effects of posts that are present in one database cluster, but not another, if I had to guess. Yeah, that's uh, Twitter's uh, eventual consistency model. Yeah. And that would happen sometimes even before the apocalypse at Twitter. But it wouldn't happen on 10 quote tweets in a row, <laughs> which is what I was seeing for a couple of days. Yeah, and seeing more of that kind of thing or just things not loading right and just struggling under load. Although some of that might have less to do with staff cuts and more to do with attempts to get their cloud bill down a bit. <laughs> but that's just speculation. It's Musk as chaos monkey either way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the biggest thing I expect is the next time there's a, something big goes wrong, it's going to take much longer than usual for things to come back up. And that's, I think, where this kind of thing is, is really going to show itself. Uh, the interesting thing so far has been seeing new features starting to roll out and how that was happening. To some degree, I assume some of these features had to have been in the works already, and maybe we're just getting them sooner than, than was originally planned, and you know, likely going to find sharp corners in some of them. But it just seems like anytime you have an acquisition, you're going to see some problems, especially like this. But with the, the scale of the changes they're making, if we're just kind of counting the days until something big explodes. And in particular, just because of the more complicated architecture that Twitter is built on, it can have these problems where too many services go down, they rely on each other to start up, uh, and things can be really hard to do from like a cold start type situation. Cascading failure, I think they call that, right? So that's when one thing going down knocks another thing down, knocks another thing down. But the, this one's more about this service can't start because this other service isn't started. But it can't start because a third service isn't started. And it eventually makes a ring and nothing can start because other things aren't started yet. More of a chicken and egg problem. Yeah, a chicken and egg problem. And especially when Twitter's not been turned off in a very long time. And so no one's ever made sure the procedure to start it from cold actually works. It can be a problem with especially some of the like Kubernetes and microservices and stuff. It just it can be very easy for these kind of dependence interdependencies to creep in to the point where starting at cold can be a problem. Or you get situations if you remember back when months ago when Facebook screwed up their routing and it meant that their badges couldn't unlock the door to get in to fix the routers or to sign into the VPN to 
to be able to reach the router to fix the config. And it's like, you need to make sure that everything isn't dependent on everything else in this kind of chicken and egg, chicken and egg, chicken and egg circle where nothing is able to work. Even just the effect of losing cash can be absolutely brutal at scale. I I inherited management of a database server that backed a website uh, several years back that if the database server had to be completely cold restarted and you lost all the caches on the application side and on the database side, it could take like four and a half hours to, to get actually responsive because it would just, it would get absolutely crushed under incoming load while it was trying to heat the caches up. And that would, it actually makes it even worse because when it's getting crushed under load because the caches are cold, oddly enough, that also means the caches can't fill as quickly because you've just got all these ridiculous requests for the exact same thing over and over that are all timing out, not letting in new requests that might help it start getting other things in cache. Yeah, I remember coming in and doing a ZFS audit on a large e-commerce site that you've all heard of and maybe even used. And I was like, why are you mirroring your L2 arc? We're like, when one of those SSDs dies, if we lose our cache, the database isn't going to be fast enough. So we mirror our cache. I guess that makes sense. But I'd never heard of anybody doing that before. And I was like, I guess if you depend on the cache that much, yeah, it's the right thing to do. And yeah, with something like Twitter, especially when a post gets popular uh, or something from a celebrity is going to get viewed a lot or pending news. Like I remember seeing the the news about the uh, airplane hitting the fire trucks in Peru. It's like, yeah, that's going to get a lot of clicks all of a sudden. And, and they're going to need to keep that hot in a, a lot of different geographic areas in order to make sure that they don't start throwing errors when people are trying to follow this breaking news story. Yeah. Or maybe a major sporting competition like the World Cup, for example. Yes. And lots of people whinging about no beer. And <laughs> all those things are accelerants. But honestly, um, in my own experience, I've seen a lot of businesses where somebody made a decision to cut engineering staff, you know, like sysadmin, you know, whatever. And in my experience, when that happens, like when you cut the people that support the infrastructure, at best, you've got about six months to a year before things degrade to the point where it's really getting like visibly ugly. And that's when you're talking about a business that is just kind of doing the same thing every day, uh, not really changing the way things work. You know, it's just ho-hum, day-to-day, yada, yada. And that's not where Twitter is. So you start out with that, well, you know, you, you cut all your site reliability engineers. You know, you cut a tremendous number of your ops people. What impact is that going to have? Well, for that, even to get that six months to a year, you have to be just kind of trying to operate normally day-to-day which already isn't what Twitter does because, you know, you look at like we're talking about, you know, traffic spikes from the World Cup and what have you, but also because Musk is out there being like, let's change the color of the ticks today. Let's offer a new kind. Let's charge eight bucks for it. You know, let's let's turn this into YouTube. Let's add PayPal stuff to it. Like that's not like that same, you know, piece of unmaintained equipment just rolling along in neutral. That's a lot to deal with. I think wonder like how many people at, Twitter are actually sysadmin types. Because like thinking back to WhatsApp before they got bought by Facebook, they still had millions, tens and millions of users and their sysadmin team was less than 10 people. And they could run all the servers and keep WhatsApp running with less than 10 people. And my understanding is like the whole op side of Netflix for all the video streaming is again like a dozen people. Because in the end, the servers just 
do what they're supposed to do. You shouldn't have to be prodding them every two hours or something. So if Twitter actually needed a thousand sysadmins, that points to a very different infrastructure problem. Sure. But a lot of the people were not so much sysadmins as developers. And if you're going to build all these features, then yeah, I can see how that makes sense. When you cut all those developers, you very likely also got rid of a lot of institutional knowledge is, you know, like what's the best way to do the things that I want to do? You know, which of three different competing internal APIs best matches what I'm trying to do with this, you know, yada, yada, yada. That makes a, a big difference. Yes. Or which one are we trying to get rid of because it has scaling problems and we wish they don't build something new based on top of it. And yeah. yeah, you can get all kinds of problems from that. And we already know that SREs are specifically, you know, one category that Twitter has bled. Yeah. And you would imagine management as well. And, you know, it's very easy as the new boss to say, why do we need all these managers? Well, these managers are managing people and people are managing the technology. Yeah. The first thing you want to do when you arrive in a new place is try to be a zero, right? Try not to make anything worse and learn some stuff before you make changes. Because if you try to be the, the plus one somehow, you're going to end up screwing it up. Let me tell you about uh, generational emerald wealth and the arrogance <laughs> that it gives you, Alan. Yeah. Uh, what I recommend is everybody go read Chris Hadfield's book about being an astronaut. And it's like, yeah, I got there the first day. I was super eager. So I went and washed all the beakers and like, you just destroyed all of our experiments. It's like, whoops. <laughs> I was just trying to be helpful. But it's no, it's like, just try to get the land and understand what's going on. And some of those why questions before you start trying to change things or do things. You know, that has reminded me, Alan, I had a job once a long time ago in a shop, like just a, a retail shop, and it was a very small affair. And the door was really, really squeaky. Just every time someone came in or out, it, the door, the hinges just made this horrible squeaky noise. And one time while the boss was on the phone, I was like, right, I'm going to fix that. And so I went and squirted oil in that. And then he's, he's making all these faces and he gets off the phone. He's like, I can't believe you did that. That's my security. When I'm out the back, I hear that and I know, right, I've got to go out front. And now you've made it silent. You've just totally ruined my security policy. Thanks for that, Joe. And that's a prime example. I thought I was doing something right because I didn't understand how the whole system worked. And Musk's just gone in and just thrown grenades everywhere, fired a bunch of people, said, I know better. I'm going to get my SpaceX engineers in. They they know how to put rockets up in the sky and then land them again. Well, that's not quite the same thing as making Twitter work, is it? And even if it was, you still have, like Jim was mentioning, the institutional knowledge about a lot of the times, why is it this way? It may look dumb from the outside. It might even be dumb, but it's that way for a reason. Yeah, why do we have that squeaky hinge? Well, turns out there's a reason. Yeah, if you're going to undumb that, you need to sit down and hear about all the things you're committing to before you do. <laughs> so how long do you give it then before catastrophic failure? I think it's too early to call that kind of thing. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm predicting ongoing degradation. I think, I think you're going to notice degradation well before the whole thing just collapses. Basically, expect it to start... <laughs> I don't know if you ever uh, did any recon time on, you know, Parler or Gab or, you know, one of those. But basically, <laughs> it's going to degrade down to the point where it acts like those things acted, you know, in their first few months of existence. I think it's going to be the first thing that you really see. So you don't think it's just going to be the apps just stop working, the website just won't load, stuff like that. You think it's just going to be painful to use before that? I mean, it's a combination, but I think you're going to notice the degradation before and like more often than enormous outages, 
I'm definitely not saying you won't have an enormous outage if they have not sufficiently beefed up and, you know, got a plan for dynamic expansion or, you know, whatever the hell they do for traffic spikes like the World Cup. Well, <laughs> yeah, we'll see outages, but that's a lot harder to predict. There's there's a lot more variables going on there. I feel more comfortable talking about, like I said, we're, we're going to see degradation. Yeah, and I think like if it does fall over, it'll come back probably in less than a day. But likely with even more degradation after that, while they, you know, try to get all the bits and pieces cleaned up. But it's all going to be fine. We're all going to pay eight bucks to get a blue check, just like you've got, Jim. You got yours for free. So, uh, yeah, I want mine. I'm definitely going to pay my eight bucks a month. Well, they, they, they stop selling it until they can figure out the impersonation problem, right? <laughs> yeah, which they're definitely going to do any day now. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com and try it for free on up to 20 devices. That's tailscale.com. So Jim, recently you went to the Ubuntu Summit, all expenses paid by Canonical, so we should probably talk about it. I hear you had a bit of a bad time flying there and with long layovers and potentially not brilliantly planned travels. So let's not get too bogged down in that. Let's talk about your actual experiences at the summit, shall we? Let's definitely not get bogged down in details of the flight, no. The summit was great. We uh, met in historic, beautiful Praha, which I learned is Praha and not Prague. I always thought it was Pragu. Joe, (laughs) barbarian. (laughs) Yeah, Canonical's a little rusty at uh, at putting on a, a big conference. It's been, uh, I think, like eight years since the last one. But uh, they did a pretty good job. A little disappointing for me, a lot of the time it felt more like the Snap Summit than the Ubuntu Summit, and I'm just really not enthusiastic about Snap packages. But uh, we had some good talks at the end. Good hallway track. It, it took it took me a, a day or two to you know actually get on the hallway track, and that's always the best part of any given conference. Well, yeah, like you got to hang out with Gary, who's been on this show, obviously from Linux After Dark. Uh, he got his way paid as well. I mean, that that's the thing. Canonical paid a bunch of money for a lot of people, people from open source projects, people from open source media. You know, this must have cost them a pretty penny to put on. Yeah, I saw Graham there too. Oh, of course, yeah. I'm still not used to uh, going someplace and somebody recognizes me, like not by my face, but by my voice. And that just kept happening. Like people who podcast would say something in the crowd and you'd see, you know, five or six heads just immediately prairie dog up. Like, no, 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 I know who that is. That's that's Graham or that's Jim or that's Gary. So far too much snap stuff then. But um, 
What about the, the social stuff then? Because that, for me, is what conferences are all about. It's not really about the talks. I mean, yeah, there's often some great stuff there, but usually you can catch up with that with uh, VOD and stuff. But the actual getting together and, and, you know, actually, you know, the meat space side of things, that must have been really great. That was nice. That was that was very nice. That's always good at any given conference. Uh, I, I guess it was a little bit special for me at the Ubuntu Summit just because, like, all of those people were Ubuntu people. You can be as distro agnostic as you like, but like still to some degree, like you think of Linux as being like your Linux that you run. And then you talk to somebody who's like a Fedora fan when you're an Ubuntu fan and like, you're still totally Linux buddies, but there's, there's still kind of that filter. Like Mm. what, why do you want to do that that way? That's not the right way to do it. Yeah. Why do you want to run FreeBSD, Alan? (laughs) That's totally wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So travel nightmare aside, are you glad you went then? Yeah, definitely. It was nice to finally meet like a whole bunch of the canonical people. Canonical doesn't usually go to many conferences in uh, America, at least on the East Coast. And um, we only ever, ever really got one pair of people out from Canonical like one year to talk about Juju in like 2012. And um, I hadn't really seen anybody from Canonical since. So just kind of, you know, getting to mingle with and talk to and and hear talks from a lot of the folks that are, you know, working at Canonical, making Ubuntu from the inside, not just the community side, that was definitely nice. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. And do send them in, and remember, the shorter the better. Another perk of being a patron is you get to skip the queue, which is what Russell did. He writes, I have a problem with OpenSense and the WireGuard kernel module, where sometimes after boot up, it won't auto start, or occasionally I find it not running. This is most inconvenient. I assume I can use the Monit service to monitor and restart it if it fails, but I can't quite get the configuration right. I would assume I want to use etsyrc.conf.d slash wireguard as the startup script, but that's not executable by default and it seems lacking, but I can't really find another piece. With more time permitting, I'll track down the issue to start it, but I want band-aids for now. My thoughts are, maybe it has to do with AdGuard Home running on the same device and a start race condition as I use DNS to connect endpoints. I share a joint connection between my parents' house and mine so that I can administer both networks. Yeah, so the first thing is that's not a startup script. Uh, as you can maybe guess from the name, etc slash rc.conf.d, those are config fragments. In particular, these are for the startup script, so they're kind of equivalent to like the what you'd find under etc defaults on Linux, where you can change some stuff about the program that is not necessarily like the program's config file. So what you want to do, what you have Monit do, is run service WireGuard start, and that will find the startup script, which by default would actually be user local etc rc.d slash WireGuard, and that'll be the startup script. Startup scripts for things that are built into the operating system will be etc rc.d, and then the ones that come from packages are user local etc rc.d. But if you just use the service command, it'll search all those paths because OpenSense might have added additional paths of their own for things like WireGuard that they're bundling into OpenSense. And the service command also makes sure that things from the environment of the user you're logged in as 
don't impact the service. So it, it cleans out the environment before starting the service so that things like your home directory or uh, your SSH agent socket or any other things like that that are set for your user that you're logging in to run the commands as don't impact the, uh, the service that you're trying to start. So just tell Monit to run service WireGuard start and it will go ahead and take care of that. And that also uh, has the protections to make sure if WireGuard's already running, it won't try to start it a second time. As far as for why it's not starting, there might be something useful in the logs at some point to see why I'm guessing it is starting and having to stop immediately. The fact that you're depending on DNS is likely part of the problem. It might be that you just need to tell it to wait a bit before starting or making sure that the, the network's completely up before you start it. Well, so a sleep 10 and and maybe. Uh, well, in the in the top of that config file, that user local or the, the service script, user local etc rc.d slash wireguard, you can control the dependencies and make it come later or those keywords you need to say late and it'll go near the end of the startup. Of course, things like wireguard can get really interesting because if you have other services that are going to run on the host that you want to depend on the VPN being up first, then it can get the order of starting all these services and get a bit more complicated. Especially if you're depending on the VPN or something else in order to be able to do the DNS you need for other services to start. So yeah, it's hard to say why it doesn't come up consistently. It, it probably should, but checking the logs is probably the, the best thing there. You can set an environment variable. Uh, I think it's like WireGuard underscore debug equals and then a number to have WireGuard log more information about what's happening. And that might also enlighten why it's quitting uh, when it's supposed to start. I don't know what the default in WireGuard is as far as if the DNS fails to resolve. I kind of assume it doesn't just exit, but actually would retry. But I've, I've not run into that situation. I've been lucky enough to have static IPs for my various WireGuard endpoints. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offer 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com 25A. David also skipped the queue. He said, I run a lot of Ubuntu 18.04 based appliance VMs on a Debian 11 host using libvirt. Occasionally it becomes necessary to increase the allocated RAM to one of these VMs as the load increases, but my current procedure requires a reboot of the VM and results in downtime. I noticed libvirt allows you to specify a maximum amount of memory to allocate in the VM's XML file, and then you can adjust it on the fly using the setmem command. My question is thus, are there any downsides to configuring extra memory that I can expand into on the fly as needed? Or is this a bad idea that could lead to instability? So usually the way this works is with a system called ballooning, which requires a, a driver inside the VM, which basically allocates the memory that your 
not supposed to be able to use. So if you make the VM able to do six gigs, but you're only giving it four right now, it'll allocate and block off that other two and sit there and, and act like it's using it so that the, the system doesn't know that that memory is actually not, its content isn't being backed on the host and is available for some other VM instead. I've not had much luck with it, but I've also had not much call for it. I don't think it can really lead to any particular kind of instability. It just, it is a way to basically over-provision your memory to make each VM support more memory and then give a bunch of it back. And then that way you can always expand it in the future, but you don't have to restart to do it. In the end, a reboot of the VM shouldn't cause so much downtime to be a problem, but this does seem like one possible way to solve the problem. In your case, the Ubuntu guests probably support it, and it's okay. Although if you're trying to run other more exotic guests, they might not actually support this memory ballooning stuff, and they can get more complicated. And it can just get a bit much to manage when you don't know how much memory the VM is actually using. In order to make this work, it kind of helps if the memory you're blocking off is contiguous. And so once you grow it, shrinking it again can be much more complicated. Although all of this can happen with indirection in the VM, but it gets more complicated when you're trying to make it high performance and not have to go through a full VM exit and into the hypervisor software every time you're trying to access memory. So you're telling me that with this ballooning thing, you can just give the VM more memory without it freaking out? Well, so you basically boot the machine as if it has the maximum amount of memory. And at boot up, the driver will come and steal all the memory above ah. the limit, right? So if you boot it up to believe it, it has six gigs installed, but at boot, another process blocks off that last two gigs and says, no, I'm using this. The VM runs like it only has four gigs of memory. But at some point, you can run the setmem command and say, actually free one of the two gigs that you were blocking off before. And now the VM has five gigs of memory. Right, I see. You can also do this with CPUs. Most OSs now support hot plug of CPUs, specifically for this VM use case, where at boot, you tell it, hey, actually, you have 16 CPUs, but only two of them are plugged in right now. Huh. And the VM runs with two CPUs, and you can plug in more later. How useful that is and the extra complexity usually doesn't make it worth it, because in the end, especially a Ubuntu VM, probably doesn't take that long to reboot. And maybe it's just a lot easier to, to do that than have some of this fixed overhead of having all these CPUs, but they're offline. I know it's definitely caused some problems in software, especially when you just change the number of CPUs or when they try to look at how many CPUs you have to decide how much, how many threads to start or something. And if it's like, well, we have 16 CPUs, but only two of them are actually working and it tries to run 16 threads and you only have two real CPUs, it can cause some weirdness there. And the same thing can happen with the memory. So it can depend on the applications, how big of a deal it is that you're kind of lying about how big the system is. But theoretically, it does all work and it's not going to crash, although it can cause some slightly odd behavior with certain software. This idea of downtime as well, I mean, you touched on that, Alan, but isn't one of the points of VMs that you can reboot them very quickly? Partly. Although, you know, some of the promise is that, oh, you don't have, if you need to reboot the host, you can just migrate the VM to another host and keep it up the whole time. But mm. in general, a better practice is to architect your stuff in such a way that having to take a machine down to reboot it isn't that big of a deal, right? You're, you're rebooting for your security updates on a regular basis anyway, right? <laughs> uh, and so you should be able to easily add more RAM or CPUs to your VM out of scheduled maintenance period or whatever. But 
this fancier stuff that allows you to expand the size of the VM to a point on the fly. It's mostly not really on the fly as much as allocating all those resources statically at the beginning and then blocking some of them off. But it can let you get away with a bit more. And especially if you have quite a few VMs on a host and you're really trying to fiddle around with which ones are busy. But like you said, these are appliance VMs. It's not likely that their load changes that much day to day. Uh, and so it shouldn't be quite so unpredictable where you need to give it twice as much RAM next week and then take it back the week after kind of thing. You know, there can be cases where that makes sense, but hopefully your infrastructure is architected in such a way that having to reboot one of these appliance VMs isn't a ruin your whole day kind of situation. But yes, uh, you should be able to use the the set mem stuff and the memory ballooning feature to change how much memory is actually available inside a VM. But there can be slightly weird side effects, especially when applications try to look at how much memory you have to decide how to scale or size themselves. And if you have a lot more than you actually have, because you're reporting the maximum size of how much RAM this VM could have, not how much it currently has, it can cause weird effects. Like even, for example, ZFS by default looks at half of the installed memory as the maximum size of the arc. But if you set this VM to have up to 32 gigs of RAM, but actually it only has four, then your arc max is going to be a lot more than your actual RAM. It's not necessarily not going to work because it actually does look at how much free RAM and, and shrinks itself, but you can see how that kind of thing can lead to problems. And I know the version of ZFS you can get on Ubuntu 18 definitely didn't have the more recent fixes to deal with counting the number of online CPUs and adjusting those numbers when you make new CPUs show up that went into ZFS in around 2.0. You literally had to crowbar ZFS into this, Alan, didn't you? It was just the example I had off the top of my head of something that adjusts based on the size of the memory and the number of CPUs in your machine. What are the odds that it would be ZFS that you'd come to for this example? Oh, eh? It's the example that somebody running Ubuntu might understand versus all my BSD examples, right? <laughs> like, what's that? <laughs> true, true. Well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet, for now at least. <laughs> and I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.